Good morning. If you have your Bibles, I'd like to invite you to turn to Joshua. And as you're turning there, let me give you a couple of updates from our mission team. A couple of things going on. Uh, In your bulletin, there are a bunch of teams that are listed there for you to be praying for, some things that are going to be happening in the coming weeks. But right now, we have teams on the ground in Cuba, and we have a team that just left for Philippines yesterday, I think. And we have a team that leaves Monday to go to South Carolina to work with one of our church planters there, the church at Blue Ridge. Our team in Cuba has run into a little bit of trouble. The, The authorities there have refused to release their bags. So the problem with that is they're there to do a VBS and all that stuff is filled up in those bags. So I want us to pray for all of our teams, but specifically this morning, I want us to pray against anyone who would stand against what God would be wanting to do. And we're going to ask that God would release those bags this morning. They're having a meeting uh, with the authorities there. So let's have that prayer this morning. If you would join me in prayer, let's do that. Father, we're grateful to be able to, I guess, just even be excited, Lord, is what we are, that all of our teams are out and about, and we're grateful that you're moving. And Father, we ask right now that as our team heads to South Carolina, you would give them traveling safety and that many people will hear the gospel this week. We pray for Pastor Ted and Pastor Robert as they lead the church of Blue Ridge there, and we pray for our team working in the Philippines, Lord, that they will be your hands and feet ministering to orphans, and uh, Father, that as they share the gospel, that lives will be changed, that hope will be given in Jesus Christ. And we pray for our team in Cuba. Thank you for their safety getting there. And now we pray, Lord, that you would release those bags so that VBS can be uh, carried out this week. And we pray for uh, Rody Pena, our partner there. And God, we just pray for your favor. And we pray, Father, that you would come against anyone who would stand in the way of this. And that by your strong hand, that trip, Lord, would accomplish what you want it to. We ask these things in the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. It's a lot going on right now. I, I hope you're keeping up with our, your gospel engagements. Uh, Sunday, Kathy and I were supposed to be flying out uh, to go to Dallas, and we spent all afternoon at the airport watching it rain and lightning and no planes take off. And so uh, we, we caught a ride to the airport, but what was great about that was that when our flights were canceled, our ride didn't answer when we called them back. I won't name them, my parents, uh, d- d- you know, who didn't answer uh, when we called. So we ended up uh, having a great opportunity. God used that so that we'd have an opportunity to share with a Lyft driver uh, and just had a great time being able to do that. And we were grateful for it. And so I just want to remind you to be having your gospel engagements. We had somebody baptized in the first service, which is just awesome. And at camp this past week, our student camp, and I should just say, Thank you for being a church that values the experience of church camp. That's an important week in the lives of teenagers, and I appreciate your support in that and making sure that we provide opportunities for kids to go to camp. We had a bunch of kids go to camp. I think they had about 100 uh, total counselors and campers, and four kids gave their life to Christ, and three were baptized at camp, and that's an amen to the Lord right there, isn't it? That's good stuff. So we're, we're excited about all of those things going on, and uh, let, let's take a moment and look at our memory verse, uh, and let's just say this as we do. We start with the reference, and then we'll say the verse. Joshua 1.9, have I not commanded you, be strong and courageous. Do not tremble or be dismayed, for the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. Joshua 1.9. So that's kind of where we're headed today. Uh, it's Father's Day, and 
Father's Day is an interesting time at my house. I'm never sure to be, if I should be happy or sad that my family's never with me on Father's Day. It always works out. Now, the sad part of that is, is that there's no one to say Happy Father's Day, I guess. The good part of that is we only have one TV in our house, and I get to watch golf this afternoon, I guess. But if I could give you one further indignity for Father's Day dads, for you know, Father's Day and Mother's Day are different, aren't they? They're just a little different. Mother's Day, everybody comes to church with mama. Father's Day, not so much. You might expect this morning a sermon on how to be a good father. But we're going to have a sermon about a woman. Just for one more for you this morning. So that's kind of where we're at today, dads. And uh, I just wanted to keep in the spirit of the holiday for you, okay? So that you'd feel right at home. We're going to be talking about somebody named Rahab today. And Rahab is the most unlikely of heroines in the scripture. And we find her as Joshua has been commanded by the Lord to start the conquest of the land. I want to just read something out of Joshua chapter 1 for you, verse 10 and 11. Last week we talked about how God had called Joshua, and now we see in verse 10 Joshua moving on that. Joshua commanded the officers and the people, saying, Pass through the midst of the camp. And command the people, saying, Prepare the provisions for yourself, for within three days you are to cross this Jordan to go in and possess the land which the Lord your God is giving you to possess it. This begins the conquest of the land. And when we talk about the conquest of the land, it's going to be rather brutal. In many places, they are going to leave and take no prisoners. It's going to be brutal. And every time we talk about that, It always brings up a question, and I think before we talk about Rahab, it's important for us to answer some of these questions. Some people say, how could God be so cruel as to be a God of judgment that he would do something like this, that he would wipe out all the people in the land? Why couldn't they be reached another way? And I think it's a good question that a lot of people have tried to answer in the past. And I think sometimes the answers that they have given fall short. Some people would say that... Uh, they would shy away from this because a God who is loving would never execute judgment on people like this. And that seems logical when you first start talking about it, but the problem is is that if you run it to its logical conclusion, it leaves you wanting because God then would have been kind of giving a judgment on Christ and making Christ die in our place for no reason. If judgment isn't real and God doesn't execute judgment, why did Christ need to die in our place? If we're worthy and not unworthy, you don't need Christ to die in your place. But God said that we weren't worthy and he sent Christ to die in our place to take the penalty of our sins. Some have tried to invalidate the Old Testament by saying we see two different Testaments quite clearly. There's a God of wrath in the Old Testament and a God of love in the New Testament. But I could give you really quickly two stories from each testament that would seem to invalidate that point as well and show you that the same God is in both testaments. In the Old Testament, you have uh, the story of Nineveh and the prophet Jonah. If you remember, Jonah was going to a place called Nineveh and he was to preach destruction to an entire city. And God told him to walk throughout the entire city preaching this destruction. God was going to destroy the entire city. Jonah did preach that. And what came out of it is kind of interesting God stayed his judgment. God was merciful. So God was a God of wrath and mercy, as he always is in the Old Testament. But in the New Testament, people say, well, God is only a God of love. But in the book of Acts, there's a story of a couple who really wanted to be thought of quite highly in their church. Their names were Ananias and Sapphira. And Ananias and Sapphira 
took some land and sold it, and they acted like they brought the whole price of that land to the church because they wanted to be well thought of in their church. And we know that what happened is that when they were questioned about it and they lied about it, God killed them both instantly. The God of love is a God of wrath, and those two things are not separated for us. And one of the funny things that we find out about this story of the conquest of the land is that God had been extremely patient. The book of Genesis actually tells us that God had destroyed the entire earth at one point with a flood, right? And after that, as the earth began to populate again, God was extremely patient. When God was making his covenant with a man named Abraham, he spoke about the land that they were going to inherit. And he gave a prophecy there. Genesis chapter 15 records it for us. Let me just read it for you. God said to Abram, Know for certain that your descendants will be strangers in a land that is not theirs. That's Egypt. Where they will be enslaved and oppressed for 400 years. But I will also judge the nation whom they will serve. And afterward they will come out with many possessions. As for you, you shall go to your fathers in peace. You will be buried at a good old age. Then in the fourth generation they will return here. For the iniquity of the Amorite is not yet complete. God gave the people of this land that we're talking about 400 years. 400 years to repent. That's plenty of time to repent. But can I tell you the truth about repentance? Most people aren't interested in it. Most people don't care. Most people aren't interested in following after God. And it doesn't matter if you give them a year, two years, 400 years, 1,000 years. The scripture says that unless God moves on your heart and calls you, you'll go your own way every time. That's the way that we are. So that's where we pick up our story today in Joshua chapter 2, verse 1. Follow along with me. Joshua 2, verse 1. Then Joshua, the son of Nun, sent two men as spies secretly from Shittim, saying, Go view the land, especially Jericho. So they went into, came to the house of a harlot whose name was Rahab and lodged there. And it was told the king of Jericho, saying, Behold, the men of the sons of Israel have come here tonight to search out the land. And the king of Jericho sent word to Rahab, saying, Bring out the men who have come to you, who have entered your house, for they have come to search out all the land. But the woman had taken the two men and hidden them, and she said, Yes, the men came to me. But I did not know where they were from. It came about when it was time to shut the gate at dark that the men went out. I do not know where the men went. Pursue them quickly, for you will overtake them. But she had brought them up to the roof and hidden them in the stalks of flax, which she laid in order on the roof. So the men pursued them on the road to the Jordan to the fords. And as soon as those who were pursuing them had gone out, they shut the gate. Now before they had lain down, she came to the roof and said to the men, I know the Lord has given you the land, and the terror of you has fallen on us, and all the inhabitants of the land have melted away before you. For we heard how the Lord dried up the water of the Red Sea before you when you came out of Egypt, and what you did to the two kings of the Amorites who were beyond the Jordan, to Sion and Og, whom you utterly destroyed. When we heard it, our hearts melted, and no courage remained in any man any longer because of you. For the Lord your God, he is God in heaven and above and on earth below. Now, therefore, please swear to me by the Lord, since I have dealt kindly with you, that you will also deal kindly with my father's household and give me a pledge of truth. Spare my father, my mother, my brothers, my sisters, and all who belong to them and deliver our lives from death. So the men said to her, 
our life for yours if you do not tell this business of ours. And it shall come about when the Lord gives you the land that we will deal kindly and faithfully with you. If you were here last week, we recalled the story of Joshua and a man named Caleb. They were the only two of the entire generation of people who got to see the promised land. You may remember that they were part of a group of 12 spies sent out by Moses to go and scout out the land. And when they came back, Joshua and Caleb said, this land is good, we need to go take it. But the other 10 said, no, we can't do it. They got scared and they swayed the opinion of the people and God punished the people by making them wander around for 40 years. It's kind of funny. Joshua decides that they better scout out the way they're going to go into the land. And we notice he didn't send a committee of 12. He picked two. And I can imagine him sitting down with these guys going, you better bring back a good report. I don't have 40 more years to wander around, guys. It said it was a secret mission. I don't know if he didn't tell anyone that that's what was going to go on, but he sends these two guys. We're told about that time of year that the Jordan River would have been swelling its banks as it would have been in flood state. So here are two guys who possibly swim the river and begin to sneak in. They try to blend into a city, and they go to a place called Jericho. Archaeologists have discovered what they believe to be Jericho, and if you go with us to Israel next year, I hope that we'll be able to see Jericho. It's a dig site there, an archaeological tell, as they call them. Uh, One of the things that we know about that uh, city from this archaeological dig is that Jericho was about the size of our church campus. It was about eight acres big, and it was positioned in such a way that it had two walls, an inner wall and an outer wall. The inner wall and outer wall were 30 feet high, but the inner wall was 12 feet thick. Think about that for a minute, 12 feet thick. And the outer wall was six feet thick. So this was a city that was definitely set up to be in a defensive position, and it would have been a formidable thing for anyone to attack it. When the spies get to the city, they go to the house of Rahab, whom the scripture calls a harlot. Now, I want to be sensitive to that because we all have uh, folks of different ages in the room, and there may be uh, different ages listening to what we're doing in the live stream right now. And we're not going to say much about that description, but we will come back to it a little bit later Uh, towards the end of the message because I think it holds something that's important for us. It wouldn't have been an unusual thing for a woman like Rahab to run a house that would have been open to travelers like an inn. Word of the two strangers coming into town spreads fast because everybody dies famous in a small town, as the song says. And so what begins to happen is this king comes out and says, we have a problem. Notice what happened in verse 3. The king of Jericho sends word to Rahab and says, bring them out. Those who entered your house, for they've come to search out all the land. But the woman said, yeah, they did come to me, but I don't know where they were from. And it came about when it was time to shut the gate at dark that the men went out, and I don't know where they went. Pursue them quickly, for you will overtake them. But she had taken them, hidden them in the stalks of flax, and she laid them as they were laid in order on the roof. So the men pursued them on the road to the Jordan at the fords, and as soon as those who were pursuing them had gone out, they shut the gate. Something about these two strangers appealed to Rahab in a very different way. Instead of turning them into the authorities, she actually hid them on top of her roof amongst these stalks of flax. And you know the consequences of her actions would have been treasonous. It would have been death. Not only for her, but probably for her entire family. To hide the spies and be caught would have been the end But she didn't care. She protected the two men from God's army, all the while risking her own life. And verse 8 begins to tell us why. She'd heard a testimony. 
she goes back. The scripture kind of tells the story and then goes back. Notice what happened in verse 8. As they lay down, she said, I know the Lord has given you the land, and the terror of you has fallen on all of us, for the inhabitants of the land have melted away before you. Now listen to this. For we have heard how the Lord dried up the water of the Red Sea before you when you came out of Egypt and what you did to the two kings. And look at verse 11. When we heard it, our hearts melted. No courage remained in any man any longer because of you. For the Lord, your God, he is the God of heaven above and on earth beneath. Rahab had been changed and she was no longer an idol worshiper. It's a fascinating thing. She'd heard a testimony. Now I want you to think about this just to give us a little bit of context. Somebody asked me after the first service, do I think Rahab was alive when the children of Israel came out of Egypt? No idea, it doesn't say. But the testimony of what God had done, if you remember what happened in that, when the children of Israel left Egypt, they got to the Red Sea. They had no weapons. They were facing the most formidable army the world may have ever seen. And as that army uh, trapped them at the Red Sea, Moses cried out to the Lord, raised his rod, and what happened? All of a sudden, the sea parts, and they walked through on dry land, and the Egyptians couldn't leave it alone. They had to come in after them. And when they did, all of the army drowned, right? So God's people crossed over. Now, I want you to think about what's happened here. She's heard a testimony about this, and it's made a huge difference in her life. And she begins to say, because of these things, I know the Lord has given you the land. She said that in verse 9. She clearly saw what the leaders of her own city couldn't see. You see, they were, they were trying to protect their, their city. She was trying to protect her soul. Big difference here, isn't it? They were trying to protect what they had. She was trying to protect her soul. She understood something. And this was clearly illustrated in verse 11. If you look at verse 11, we see a confession of faith. For the Lord your God, he is God in heaven above and on earth beneath. Rahab declared her faith in the one true God. Her, confess, her confession of, of faith for us, I think, is pretty insightful. It's insightful because we learn something from it. The Bible tells us that faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. What had she heard? She'd heard the testimony of the Lord. And it caused her to do something. It caused her to make a confession of faith. She says, I know that the Lord, he is God in heaven above and on the earth below. Now that would have been completely contrary to the religious and cultural practices of her day. She had been an idol worshiper, but she wasn't anymore. Now she's saying, I believe in the one true God. She had been truly changed. She turned her back on everything that she had known. And she decided that following God meant more to her than anything else. And she could have turned them into the authorities when the king of Jericho sent word to the house. But she didn't. She turned her back on her cultural relationships because God was more important. She turned her back on her country because God was more important. She turned her back on false gods because God was more important. She put her faith in the one true God. Interestingly enough, there are two New Testament passages that speak about Rahab and her faith. Hebrews in chapter 11 verse 30 says that by faith the walls of Jericho fell down after they had been encircled for seven days. By faith Rahab the harlot did not perish along with those who were disobedient after she had welcomed the spies in peace. Her faith kept her from perishing. It's a fascinating thing. 
Her faith kept her from perishing because she wasn't disobedient. She was different than everyone else. Everyone else was determined to fight, but Rahab was determined to live, and she was going to live in the faith of the one true God. That's a fascinating thing because she had no promise that the one true God's spies would make this deal with her. She had to do it in faith. She had to put her faith, not just in a declaration, a confession, but she had to do it with actions. And that's what the very next book of the Bible tells us. James chapter 2 and verse 24 says, You see that a man is justified by works and not by faith alone. In the same way, was not Rahab the harlot also justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out? This is very important. Rahab didn't just speak some words. Rahab didn't just say, man, God's great. What she did was she spoke words. And then she put her words into action. Her words were followed by action. It's one thing to make a confession of faith. It's quite a different thing to have a practice of faith. Those who have truly been saved and make a confession of faith have a practice of faith. They don't just speak the words, they live it out. You can't divorce the two. And so many times people try to do this. It's like, oh yeah, I believe. Do you believe enough to turn your back on your culture? Do you believe enough to change your life? Do you believe enough to to change how you speak? Do you believe enough to put your faith into practice? That's exactly what Rahab did she didn't try to fight God she humbled herself before God when she made this confession of faith but then she acted on her confession of faith it's a funny thing it's really convenient to claim faith when it benefits you really convenient in America today a lot of people claim faith because it's convenient you know there are times when it's it's nice to have faith if I'm sick man I want to believe in God Man, if I'm going through a tough time, I believe, in, I believe in God. What do you get out of that? What do you really think you get out of that? Faith that isn't practiced, it's just words. It doesn't work to separate our lives and say, well, I'm this way over here. But when I want to be faithful and I want to be a person of religion, this is how I live over It doesn't work that way. You can't separate the two. We, we're not able to place our life in one container and our faith in one container and you take a little bit out and kind of mix it together when it works for you. Faith has to have a practice. It has to be accompanied by action. Could it be this morning that you might be a person who give great lip service to faith, but you've never been saved because there is no action behind it. In our church, one of the dangers is this idea that we've made a decision sometimes to follow Christ and that once a decision made, eternity is secure and we don't have to worry about anything else meaning we can live however we want. That's a pollution of good theology. It is true that once you've been saved, eternity is secure, and you never have to worry about anything else again. That's absolutely true. 
But what is the test of faith? It's action behind a confession of faith. A person who comes and says, well, I've been saved, and they never change, was never saved. It doesn't work. Maybe you've never given your life to Christ. And I would encourage you today and tell you, you should follow Rahab's example. She's a perfect example of what it means to become a follower of the Most High God. She decided God was the one true God and was going to cast her lot with him, no turning back. Didn't matter what the culture said, didn't matter what her country said, her city said, her king said. She decided she was going to follow God. And Just like there was hope for Rahab, there's hope for you. There's hope for you. The Bible says that when we confess with our mouth Jesus is Lord, it's not if we can be saved, it's that we are saved. Make your confession of faith this morning. Follow the Lord Jesus Christ. The Bible says that anyone may come. And that's why I think God included this woman's story in the scripture. Sometimes people think mistakenly, I'd love to come, but if you only knew what was in my past, like being a harlot? Well, maybe, but if you only knew... I've got some stuff, don't we all? What is it that God can't overcome in our lives? What mistake have we made that God can't overcome in our lives? God uses this story to remind us that whosoever will may come. Anyone may come. It doesn't matter about your yesterdays because they don't determine your tomorrows with Christ. The old passes away and behold, all things become new. Praise the Lord for that. That we don't have to live with who we were. And you say, well, yeah, Jesus could save me, but he could never use me. I just, I believe he could save me maybe, but he couldn't use me. There's one other place in scripture that Rahab's name shows up, and it's a fascinating place. It's in Matthew chapter 1. If I could read it for you, Matthew chapter 1 records the genealogy of Christ. The record of the genealogy of Jesus the Messiah, son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac, Isaac the father of Jacob, Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers. Judah was the father of Perez and Zerah by Tamar. Perez was the father of Hezron, Hezron the father of Ram, Ram the father of Amenadab, Amenadab the father of Nation, Nation the father of Salmon, Salmon the father of Boaz by Rahab. Boaz was the father of Obed by Ruth, and Obed was the father of Jesse. Jesse was the father of David the king. We use this book at our house for uh, kind of Bible instruction with our kids. It's called Long Story Short. I've mentioned it before. Long Story Short would describe it like this, and I think this helps. Rahab was a long, far-off, distant relative of Jesus Christ the Lord. Now, why would, why would God put that in the genealogy of Jesus? I think it's because he wants us to realize that there are no second-class citizens in the kingdom of heaven. Once a person's bought with a price of the blood of Jesus Christ and your sins have been forgiven, all things have been made new, and Rahab is in the genealogy of Jesus Christ. She's also in the genealogy of the greatest king of Israel, King David, a man after God's own heart. It's a fascinating thing. Once she was redeemed... God used her. 
She became part of the story of eternity. She became part of the story of hope. She became part of the story of redemption so that we could see that it doesn't matter what your yesterdays were. It matters where you're going today with Christ. She shows up all throughout the New Testament as a picture of grace. But I think Rahab's life also has a lesson for believers this morning. Sometimes as believers, we can mistake, especially those of us who were born and raised in these United States. The American experience sometimes gets confused with the Christian experience. And here's what I mean by that. I'm proud to be an American. Uh, I'm grateful for the country that I live in. I'm grateful for all of my freedoms. But I can never confuse my allegiance to my country with my allegiance to my king. My king is the Lord's, Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And where my country and my king differ, it always goes to my king. Where my political party and my king differ, it always goes to my king. Where my culture and my king differ, it always goes to my king. Right? Where there's peer pressure for me to do something, and I told our students in, in the first hour that their parents tell them that they need to avoid peer pressure and act like they don't have peer pressure. Parents are lying. All of us live with pressure of peer pressure, work pressure, the friend groups that we run in, the social settings that we live in. If your life is feeling that pressure, if it's your pressure or king, it's always the king. See, I, I'm part of a kingdom that I haven't yet seen with my own eyes. I've not seen it, but I believe it. I believe that Jesus Christ is coming back. He's going to right the wrongs of this earth. He's going to make the nations, oh, by the way, which America is one of those, his footstool. The nations are his inheritance. Now, you might hear me this morning and say, well, man, he must be saying that we shouldn't be engaged in the process. Absolutely not. 100% you should be engaged in the process. We need to pray for godly men and women to be in office. We need to pray for godly men and women to be in positions of influence. We need to work for that. We need to support that until it's called into question service to the country, service to the king. It's always the king because here's what I believe. When you serve the king, you'll be a good citizen of the country. When you serve the king, you'll be a good citizen of the country. We need to be engaged in that. But we can't look at it through this lens as if being a Christian is being an American. That, that's not true. Being a Christ follower supersedes your country. You know how we know that, don't you? The scripture tells us in the book of Revelation that there's a day coming when representatives from every tribe, every tongue, every nation will be standing before the throne of God singing his praises. And I want to be numbered in that tribe. That's the tribe I want to be part of. I want to be part of that group of people on that day. And so we have to be careful with this. And we have to take Rahab's example. She turned her back on her culture because it conflicted with her king. Culture presses in all the time. I say this to us all of the time. You don't realize how cultural you are. You don't realize... How cultural creep happens. It, it invades your life little by little, just like it does mine. And we have to constantly be evaluating, am I just being an American? Am I just being a Democrat? Am I just being a Republican, an Independent? Or am I being a Christian? Because that's the first calling. 
And anything that sets itself up against that, we must defer to our heavenly citizenship. Well, you may be feeling a little bit of that pressure right now from your friend group or your political party or the office where you work. There's always pressure to give in. Just bend a little bit. Just, just, just bend a little bit. doesn't work. Your heart can't be divided. Must choose whom you'll serve. I wonder if you've been moved to action this morning. I've been reading this story of Rahab for the last few weeks, and I've got to be honest with you. It's bothered me. It's bothered me because I've wondered what's more important, my culture or my king? Maybe this morning as we've preached this sermon, you've never made a confession of faith and that's bothering you. A confession of faith is pretty simple, but the implications of it are huge. You simply just come before the Lord Jesus Christ and you say, I believe you died on the cross in my place for my sins. Save me today. I believe that you rose on the third day and that you sit at the right hand of God the Father. Save me today. And the scripture says, all who call on the name of the Lord will be saved. No matter your past, Rahab proves it. Maybe you're a Christian who's been sitting back for a while because of whatever's in your past, you felt like a second-class citizen of the kingdom of heaven. That's a lie from the enemy. When Rahab the harlot is used over and over and over again to tell us what faith looks like, and then she finds herself in the genealogy of Christ, there are no second-class citizens. And I'd ask all of us this morning to just examine whether or not our culture is winning in our lives or whether our king is. Where king and culture conflict, the culture must go by the wayside. If not, it's just words, folks. It's just words. Faith has a practice. I heard a preacher once say that your faith is being practiced when the tongue in your mouth and the tongue in your shoes are going in the same direction. That's a good word for us. Would you bow your heads and pray with me? As God's moving in our midst, maybe it's time for you to make your confession of faith. Or maybe it's time for you to put your mind back on track, your heart back on track with your king. As God's moving in your life, would you just respond right now with a yes? Just say yes. Father, as we respond to you, we do it in faith. And we say yes. Father, forgive us when we've given in to our culture or we valued a political party, or a candidate, or a nation to be more valuable than our citizenship in the kingdom of heaven. 
Move us as a force, Lord Jesus Christ, for good. We know that when the righteous do well, the city rejoice. So, Father, make us righteous. I pray for anyone who's never made their confession of faith, that in a moment they'd have their courage, Lord, to stand up like Rahab did, follow her example, and declare before us that you are their Savior. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.